0: So I hope that some of you, if you visited either the Facebook page or Instagram page, you would have seen an amazing video, uh, even though I'm, I'm part of it. Um, one of the things that we decided to do is give just a one-minute kind of teaser, uh, taster, so every Thursday or Friday that'll be posted, but the, the the goal of it is that you would be able to then read the scripture before you come on Sunday and have time to contemplate on that. Uh, I did get a few questions from that. First of all, was I, would I wear my kilt uh, this morning? I did not. Uh, would I be carried in by people? No, I did not. Uh, I will say that when you're at a wedding and you just pull people together, it's amazing what God will provide, which included a professional videographer, although he's from the States and works for a professional wrestling company, so I don't know if that was really totally helpful. However, that is what God provided for us. I'd like to welcome you to Hope City. My name is David, and I'm one of the teaching team here. Over the past few weeks, we've been following Paul and his colleagues as they have made their way uh, to Jerusalem from Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. This narrative is found in Luke's history of the early church called the Acts of the Apostles. Some people have sometimes said it would be better to say the acts of God through the early apostles, because that is actually what it's a record of. But uh, we should look at and see what's coming. So three weeks ago, Ian taught about mind the root and the anticipation of trouble ahead. Then two weeks ago, Peter taught about warnings and the anticipation of Of trouble ahead. Last week, Matt talked and covered the section uh, where Paul, despite prophecies about what? Trouble ahead, continued on his journey to Jerusalem as uh, directed by the Spirit. If this was a serialized drama, uh, you would know what's coming and it doesn't look good for our main character. In fact, I find that when I'm watching and the, the main character on a TV show walks into a dark room, I go, why don't you turn on the lights? They always have a flashlight or a little pin light or something dim. Or the fact that, you know, they're behind you. They're in the room somewhere. There is this anticipation that something bad is going to happen. Or perhaps you love a challenge. When you've heard these three weeks of teachings about trouble ahead, you're like the skier who comes up to the top of the mountain and looks to see, which one do I want to take? And you go immediately for the double black diamond. Because you're like, bring it on. I am so ready to take off down this mountain. In fact, you might even begin to wonder if Paul is thinking in this situation, I'm the more mature and experienced believer... I've endured beatings and riots before, and I'm ready to test myself and show how it's done. But neither of these are Luke's intent. Remember, Luke is our author here. He's writing about the history of the early church. He has also written a story of the life of Jesus in the book titled Luke. So, as a doctor, he's more matter-of-fact in his narrative, He wants to make sure that everything in his story of the life of Jesus and the history of the early church is accurate. So Theophilus, who he addresses in the beginning of the book of both Luke and Acts, can know with certainty of the things that he had been taught. And here we are, 2,000 years later, studying the same accounts with the same desire to have a certainty of what we have heard about Jesus and his early followers." So let's pick up the story where we left off last week with Paul and his companions arriving in Jerusalem to meet the leaders of the church, bearing the offering that they had collected from Gentile believers on their way there, and they wanted to get there in time for an important festival or feast in the Jewish calendar. Take one of the Bibles that you have there, turn to page 1118, 1118, and follow along as David reads the passage for us.
1: Let's read together. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and report, reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men among, with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision, that they should abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification will end and the offering will be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stared up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, News reached the, the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an opera. He at once took some, some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing, some other, some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that, fo- that followed kept shouting, get rid of him.
0: So let's dive into the narrative. There's actually quite a bit to cover today. So I want to make sure that you get an understanding and a feel for this particular passage. So when we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The first thing that happens is Paul gets a warm welcome from those who believe in Jesus, no matter what their background is. They welcome him. They provide hospitality for him. They are glad to see him. Paul knew some of them. And others, perhaps, they was meeting for the first time. But in common, they had their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul goes with his traveling companions from the churches that he has either planted or been working with in Asia Minor to meet the leaders of the Jerusalem church. This is important. This is why he was coming. There's this assumption that he's going to present this offering that they have collected, but it doesn't get mentioned here. All it immediately talks about is the fact that Paul greets them, and he reports in detail in verses 19 and 20 what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard this, they praised God. Remember this is all that has happened up before this. The amazing aspect of that they understood that the the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ was not just those for those with a Jewish background but for everyone in the world. Anyone could come to Jesus and have faith and belief in him. And when we have that opportunity, then it creates some challenges because all of a sudden we're not homogeneous in our background, and where we come from. Not culturally, not religiously, not uh, in our familial structure. All of that is different. But in Christ, there's this opportunity to be together in the same fellowship, in the same church. So they worshiped when they heard what God had done, in the amazing response. But they also then report, and they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. Now, at this point, we're 20 to 25 years past the day of Pentecost, and the church in Jerusalem has grown dramatically but it has grown through those with a Jewish background. So now we hear about two different groups of believers who have a strong faith in Christ who have not necessarily merged at this point. They each have their traditions. In fact, this is not the first time that we hear about the Jerusalem church addressing what has happened among those Gentiles, those who were not Jewish. In fact, when they heard the report, they gave some strict instructions about you can ignore these things, but these are the things you have to pay attention to. And so they talked about, and we'll find out about it because they repeated again a little bit later in the passage, about what they need to follow. So what would the Jewish church have looked like at that point? If you all come from a homogeneous background and experience, what might it look like? Well, if you have thousands of them meeting in Jerusalem, they're going to be Jewish in culture and nature. And it's possible their corporate worship might have been men and women separated in the same meeting space. That's very possible. It's also possible that they would have um, had daily prayers that would have been offered, that they would have given alms for the poor, that even their participation in various religious festivals and rituals would be similar to Jews, it would look like their Jewish background and culture. This could include circumcision of male babies, dietary strict dietary rules, etc. Those were the things that the Gentiles, some of which they were released from, some they weren't. But this church had a very uh, specific character and view that it had, and so the continuation of this profile in a mixed church of Jewish and Gentile believers together had the potential for conflict. And Paul's ministry and his visit back to Jerusalem represents actually a threat to the existing establishment of what they have been doing now for 20-plus years. Think about it. When we have our cultural background, our patterns, our our, um, traditions challenged in such a way that we have to then look. And so there's also the other Jews who don't believe in Jesus, do not believe he's the Messiah, and has not accepted the fact that he is God's answer and plan for salvation for all people on the earth. They're the ones who are also witnessing and looking at this, and they're looking for anything to attack with. So, remember in our study of Galatians, though... Jesus plus nothing is based in Paul's writings, including the letter to the Romans that he writes later. So God has been at work in Jerusalem just as he's been at work among the Gentiles. But there is this now chance that we have to begin to merge that. So what are the leaders concerned with? Let's look at verse 21. They have been informed, this is the people who are Jews but not believing in Jesus, they have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. The accusations were not only that he was teaching that the Gentiles could ignore that, but that Jews also could ignore that. And in actuality, this was untrue. It's not what Paul was teaching But they did need to address the false accusations. There are times that the church must address the false accusations that come against those who teach. Not backing away from the truth of what we believe, but actually addressing when there's been a false teaching put out there. So, um, how do they propose to do this? In verses 22 to 24, we find, What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so, that, um, so here's what we will tell you to do. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in the purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have uh, their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there's no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. This is kind of an odd thing, an obedience to the law, but yet there's freedom and grace in, in the law. And how is that possible? Once again, the cultural boundaries and such they have continued to go forward with in some of that. The four Jewish believers who they're talking about, these are not Non-believers, these believe in Jesus, but yet they're fulfilling what is considered a vow. Vows were made in that point in time for petitioning God for something special. They might have gone fasted. They might have then, uh, they would not shave their heads. They tried to avoid impurities like, say, a dead body. And they would want to then keep themselves pure, maybe for up to a period of 30 days And then they would then go into the temple and they would make thanks offerings to God for listening to their prayers. That's not a requirement. God listens to our prayers whether or not we make an offering of thanks or not. But certainly it is an acknowledgement that we would look at. And so in this situation, it's not unusual because we read uh, earlier in Acts uh, chapter 18, I think, where Paul, verse 18 and 8, verse 8, that Paul does this himself in Corinth. So he's taken a vow before. He's shaved his head before. This is not out of character for who Paul is. And so um, it moves on then in verse 25. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food, sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. They don't change the rules for the Gentiles They say in that context, they can continue to do that. That's what the, as it were, the laws they were accepted from. They acknowledge and endorse the practice of the Gentile believers, but they also are saying we need to balance that with the Jewish church. So that's what James, who is the leader of the church at this point, that's what he and the elders have announced, both in chapter 15, and then they repeat it here in chapter 21. Then they put the plan into action. It's interesting that there's no response from Paul at this except for obedience to what the leaders asked him to do. The next day, Paul took the men, purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. Paul doesn't give any pushback or disagreement with this plan. He goes to the temple. He registers. If you're an enemy of Paul, now you know when he's going to come back. It's great setup. Okay, it's like, oh, he's announced he's going to be here. We know what day he'll come in. However, he does those things, and that's when he'll be part of the purification. It's not unusual for a Jew when they've returned from traveling outside of Jewish lands to do a seven days purification before they were able to go into the temple. So this was not out of character so that Paul would be able to actually go into the temple and teach. So he joins in that, not the same vow that these four other men, but one of purification so that he could actually enter the temple and not be offensive to those who are Jews. So, what is it going to look like? He agreed, well, is it a compromise, a concession, or a contextualization? You've now had the setup. You see the potential of conflict. You then have a plan offered by James and the elders, and what are we going to do with it? Well, let's look at those a little bit. So it might seem a little puzzling to you, because Paul seemingly has never backed off when there is a teaching or a controversy that he's going to address. Uh, And that anything that's outside of his understanding uh, and the Spirit's interpretation of Jesus' life and the teachings where where the Spirit has been at work. Yet here he accepts the plan, and Luke doesn't record any dissension or any hesitancy is Paul backing off on his convictions? No, I think not. But a compromise by definition is an agreement or settlement of a dispute that is reached by each side making a concession. There appears to be no dispute about the plan. They just move forward. Paul does accepts what's there. Is it a concession? Well, this is a thing. A concession is a grant is something that is granted especially in response to demands. The leaders are very clear and they use a directive verb with an imperative tone, so do what we tell you. However, it appears as though they are not asking, what they're asking is nothing different than what Paul would have done anyway. Except for the fact of taking on the aspect of paying for these four believers an act of generosity uh, as they are then putting in uh, their offerings. So it's interesting. It's Only the motive seems a little different here. It's for a display for non-believers so that they can see that Paul still follows the law. Sometimes people ask me to do things that I might have done on my own, but it kind of might get my back up when they ask me to do it. You can ask Laura if you want to know. She's back in the um, crash. But there are times where I'm going to do something anyway, but I hate to be told to do it. That's just pride. That's not anything to do with anything else. If I was already going to do it, why should I get my back up and be... be But Paul doesn't do this at all. In fact, he displays humility and he immediately responds. And he goes and does those things. What about contextualization? As a cross-cultural worker for 30 plus years in Europe, having been in Scotland, Germany, Sweden, now back to Scotland... This is a really important principle to me. How do you adapt the message and the truth of Jesus in such a way that it can be understood by the people that you're trying to share it with? As a youth worker, I always did that to make sure that there would be a way that I could connect, that they would understand, because I don't think learning happens until my life circumstance intersects the truth of Jesus Christ. And that way, there's opportunity for transformation. Well, in this case... This is not a contextualization. In fact, remember, he's the Jew's Jew. He's the one, this is his home culture. He's actually not adapting this at all. What he's doing is taking the seeds of truth and then being able to fit it into the context that he understands. And he shares that. He understands what they are asking him to do and why they are asking him to do it. And therefore, he follows. So the answer is none of the above. It's humility. It's an incredible example of a leader who submits to the leaders of the Jerusalem church in order that all people will know all things. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law... To the weak I became weak to, the, um, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. 1 Corinthians. Paul is the writer of this particular letter as well. This is a quote from one of his letters. He is doing everything he can to bring unity, within these two dispergent groups of believers so that they can merge. All right, I don't have much time, but unintended consequences, okay? The plan doesn't work out quite like they hoped for. However, I'm going to just dive really quickly through this because we've already kind of dramatized it a little bit. We've talked about it. The leaders had a plan, but how did it actually work? Well... Paul is seen by Jews from Asia in the temple near the end of the purification. This is an international festival. Remember, it's a religious festival, so it crossed boundaries. So there are Jews who are Jews that living in Asia, they have now traveled to Jerusalem for this high festival, this feast, and they see Paul. And so in there, they make this assumption that um, Paul has done something wrong. In fact, something very wrong according to the Jewish law. So they call out to the local... First of all, they, they notice that he's there. They might have planned this. They might have been part of the opposition that we read about in Ephesus and other places because we refer to Trophius, who is an Ephesian, who has become a believer. But they assume that he has brought Trophius into the temple. Why is that a problem? Because they are records, they've even found signs that were left around the temple area that said any Gentile that crosses this threshold does this by punishment of death. That was the holiest place that a Jew could walk into other than the Holy of Holies where only one priest could go in once a year. And so this is the point. If you brought them in, this is the only capital punishment that the Jews could actually execute themselves the Romans allowed them to do that. Remember with Jesus, he hadn't done that, so he wasn't accused of that. They had to come up with other things. But in this case, if Paul is found guilty of bringing a Greek, a Gentile, into there, then they had the right to kill him. Unfortunately, in this case, it's not just a false accusation that was repeated before. They've now added a new one. They call out to the local Jews and stir up the crowd by repeating the false accusations and they add another false accusation saying that he had brought uh, Trophius into the uh, temple. The crowd grows, they seize him, they drag him out of the temple and they slam the gates shut. Why do they drag him out? Because if they had killed him, they would have then defiled the temple. Once again, they're obsessed with the purity of this place. And therefore, not, not only could a Gentile not go in there, they also couldn't commit murder or have blood spilled there. And so they drag him outside and they slam the gate shut so that no one else can go in to make sure that there's no defilement. They are protecting their beliefs in their core. It's a very serious accusation. And so they drag him out and they begin to beat him with the intent of beating him to death. In verse 31 and 32... We find that the Roman garrison responds and stops the beating and then puts Paul in chains. The fortress Antonio was placed right in the middle of the city, right next to the temple, uh, with constant guards and watchmen for just such a time as this. Riots, particularly religious riots, could quickly get out of control. In fact, when uh, I was talking to Peter Granger about this uh, earlier when we prepared, he had a great question. Why is it that religious riots seem the most violent even today. Bimbo referred a few weeks ago about the attacks against Christian churches, Muslims in that context. My, my, uh, I've not been a part of a riot like that. I can remember one time being afraid for myself, but it was a football match, so I mean, that's a whole different deal. However, there is this situation where something gets totally out of hand and you have no idea why you're there or why you're angry or why you're doing what you're doing. It just carries you and it sweeps by. And all of a sudden, this riot gets out of hand. Laura's father did uh, medical missions, traveled the world uh, teaching new techniques in hospital contexts, uh, and he died. Oh, no, I didn't just make it go away. Whew, thank you. All right. Uh, let me know if it tells me anything different up there. So uh, he traveled, and uh, he passed away. Unfortunately, I never had the privilege of meeting him uh, about 50 years ago, actually, It is interesting that out of his witness, we did a memorial service when we were back in Texas this last month. They figured out that they added all the years that his family or the influence of his family had given to people serving overseas, and it was over 250 years of service with his children, grandchildren, and those cousins, etc. So, I say all that, why? Because he got caught in the Six Days War when he was teaching in a hospital in the Gaza Strip, and we were going through some of his stuff, and there were slides in a box labeled, riots in the Gaza Strip from my hotel room. And we're looking at these slides, and we're going, he was caught in the middle of a riot, and then he got evacuated to a safe city, Tehran, okay, because it was a safe city in the 60s. You forget about the fact of how quickly something can transform so Jerusalem here's the height of the worship here's the temple they're trying to protect within 15 years all of that will be gone why because there were two jewish factions fighting over control of the city in the midst of a riot of a revolt against the romans and the romans came in and destroyed everything to where the the historian josephus said it was hard to convince visitors to the area that it had ever been inhabited that's what religious riots happen and cause. There is something inside of that that's visceral with that. Well the commander is not able to actually sort out what's going on. Oh wow, I wonder if am I still in control? Doesn't appear so. So we're, we're almost going to finish then. The commander tries to sort out what's going on, but doesn't get anywhere as people shout louder, conflicting each other with each other. And the riot gets worse and worse. Finally, they had get so bad, the commander tells his soldiers to hold Paul up above them. They get to the steps of Antonio so they can carry him up. And then the shout, crowd shouts and chants away with him. Get rid of him. And at this point, it means to kill him. Let's talk about... How that mirrors something. Anybody? You're gonna go ahead and advance for me. Oh, brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, a reflection of Jesus. Paul, Matt talked about this. I'm just gonna say briefly there are three ways that this mirrors the same situation in the same place where these accusations were called against Jesus. First of all, there is a warning of opposition. John chapter 11, verse 8 says, But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back. The second mirror of it is a false accusation, found in Mark chapter 14, verses 55 to 56. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him. But their statements didn't agree. And the third was they shouted, take him away, crucify him. The same thing the crowd is calling about Paul here. But they shouted, take him away, take him away. What applications can be drawn from this narrative that we from the studies today? Well... What route has God called you to, and will it mirror the one that Jesus and Paul went on? Will you find yourself bound and carried by the crowd and taken off? If you're a follower of Jesus, we show this by being generous to each other, showing humility and obedience when we're in this situation. Therefore, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. So the route that both Jesus and Paul took was one of humility, not compromise, concession, or contextualization. There was no hubris involved at all. Paul did not meet Jesus physically before his death and resurrection on the cross, but described meeting the risen Jesus as one untimely born. This is recorded in his testimony in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. But as we will see in the coming passages, Paul's not alone in these hardships and takes every opportunity to share the good news about Jesus and the hope we find in him. The beauty of this testimony is that Jesus was not limited to appearing to only those followers who personally saw the crucifixion and the resurrection. Because Paul did not. Luke did not. And we didn't even get a chance. We're 2,000 years later to have met physically, to have seen the crucifixion, to experience the resurrection, to touch his hands and feet where the wounds were as he was resurrected. Yet, we are able to meet Jesus and believe in what he has done and taught due to the narratives that we have in the Bible from Luke and from others. We at Hope City can follow the challenging route together that Jesus, Paul, and other followers have trod for the last 2,000 years. If you are not yet a follower of Christ, then know that you can meet him here today and test the certainty of this teaching as Luke intends for us to do. Speak to one of the team today or to myself. We want you to make that meeting. We want to introduce you to the most important person, the living and eternal God. But either circumstance you find yourself in, either a follower or not yet a follower, both of those require humility to take the next step. I'm going to close this in prayer and ask as Ezra and the musicians come up that they would lead us in song. We thank you for the opportunity of your word. We ask that we would be able to see with our eyes and hear with our ears the truth of what you have written of what Luke wrote of these eyewitness accounts of what happened with the early apostles and that we would be able to follow the route that you lay out for us. It's in your son's name I ask it. Amen. 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 This song we will be sharing it's I, I believe Most of you will know this song. So, yep, you can join us, you can stand and join us, or you can sit and reflect.